Wow. Uh, last week, the European Parliament endorsed a ban on selling any new car with a combustion engine by 2035. There's a lot to like about electric vehicles, and there's a lot of misconceptions and myths, and even to borrow the phrase from my earlier report, magical thinking about the realities of how EVs are built and operate. Look, there's a lot of EVs in the world now, something like 15 million of them. Sales doubled each year in the past two years. I mean, they're on a streak and for good reasons. But as it stands right now, just for context, cars fueled exclusively from batteries still constitute well under 1% of all vehicles on the road. There's a very long hill to climb to a transition to all electric, regardless of aspirations, subsidies, and mandates. And frankly, along the way, it's going to be a pretty bumpy road. So to gain some insight from the front lines of the car business, in this episode of The Last Optimist, we're joined by Jeffrey Pohenka, a third-generation automobile dealer and currently the vice chair of the National Automobile Dealers Association, which means he's on the front lines also of not just of how you sell vehicles, but the frankly, the regulatory and political realities of selling vehicles. Now, Jeffrey also happens to be an extraordinarily perceptive analyst of issues relating not only to cars and energy, but electric vehicles in particular, because He's bought and owned a bunch of them. He's just and for long driven them a long time. We thought it'd be very helpful to our listeners to have a conversation with an expert like Jeffrey because his expertise necessarily incorporates understanding sort of the, the the three features of car ownership: what people like to buy, the emotional, practical, utility issues, how they work, um, and what doesn't work. What you know, what doesn't work in terms of what consumers ultimately say they want with their pocketbooks. To say it's at the heart of our economy understates it. And so here we are talking about transforming that business, making everybody, either forcing everybody or encouraging everybody to buy an electric vehicle instead of one propelled by an internal combustion engine. So let's talk about first what, what, I, what I like and what you like about them, because you, you, you drive lots of them, you sell them. This is your business. I, I like, I'll go through my list of things, but I want your list. But for me, the, the list is convenience. If you have a house, nice never to have to go near a gas station. Who doesn't love the acceleration? I mean, <laughs> car companies are always bragging about acceleration for a certain class of buyers. And, and I love the options. I mean, it's, who doesn't love a frunk? I mean, a, a trunk in the front, a trunk in the back, all these weird things, a car, you know, vehicles can catwalk, can propel with different, you know, for off-road purposes. It's just a, a fascinating option among the pantheon of options for cars. So those are the three biggies for me. So if I want to, I'm trying to convince one of my kids to buy, as you know, electric cars or around town car, just for those reasons. But what's not to love? Well, the thing about cars, cars are really important. You know, I used to think at one time, wouldn't it be great to sell products addicting, like has somebody has caffeine in or sugar. <laughs> said, no, cars are really addicting people you know, reflects their personality. They name their cars. Yeah. And then cars are really important for democracy because it gives you mobility, you know, yep. you freedom them to live where you want to live, where you want to work, where you want to go. And there's some people that really want to limit people's access to the cars. You know, you live in a pod community, you know, Agenda 21 is a UN, IP, a UN uh, development project 
you know, theme uh, that's in a lot of zoning. And the whole concept is people live in pod communities. They use rapid rail to go between their pod communities. You might need a car for 50 miles. So some, some of the urban planners want to, you know, plan out cars, but cars are a really important part of freedom and something to be preserved. Now, buzzes about the car business, something new is always, uh, you know, I think very important for our industry. If you look at the human body, it hasn't really evolved for many thousands of years. Yeah, we, the doctors- are, how, about, how about millions of years? Go, go millions. Okay, I want to be careful. <laughs> They're, they call it a practice. So if you imagine me, you bring your, your car into me and let me take it back into my practice. You know, you're not practicing in my car. So you know, <laughs> I think cars, uh, you know, because the average car is over 12 years old now, they last longer. They're made a lot yeah. better. There they are. People get tired of their car probably sooner than it'll wear out. It used to be a hundred thousand mile car. It was just, you know, basket case. It was ready to be rolled down the hill into the woods. And uh, now a hundred thousand mile car, it's just like, it's ready for another hundred thousand and properly cared for. So people get tired of cars before they, uh, they actually wear out in many cases. So buzz is about the car business. It's good. It's something new to look at, something to, to uh, be interested in. And, you know, self-driving cars or autonomous cars has been a buzz for quite a few years. And it's uh, billions of dollars have been spent but I still don't sell an autonomous car and I don't think we'll ever have a fully autonomous car because there are too many variables, but they, there are a lot of things that have developed from autonomous, this autonomous technology, you know, a lot of blind spot detection, automatic stop, you know, things like that. Safety features have evolved from that. And the same thing will happen with electrification, I believe. Yep. Now electrification is a big buzz and it's kind of exciting. I think, uh, for a lot of reasons. Now, I've, I'm a car dealer. I'm a third-generation car dealer. We're a 104-year-old business. I have kids who work for me. They're fourth generation. I've got some cousins, and they're fourth and fifth generation. But it's, it's kind of exciting. I, now, I, I I felt I needed to really experience it myself. And so I bought uh, – I started driving EVs as a demonstrator. drove a Golf for a while. I drove a Hyundai Kona for a while, EV, full electric BEV battery electric vehicle, they're called BEVs. Internal combustion engines are called ICE, internal combustion engine, ICE. And then I said, I'm gonna buy one. So I bought a Volkswagen ID4 when they first came out, drove it 16,000 miles, learned everything there was about it, experienced public charging, went on trips in you know, the numerous apps they are used to kind of plan your trip and so you can get a charge. And then I traded that in. I felt I learned everything I could about it. It was a very nice car. Uh, and I, driving a Hyundai Ioniq 5 right now, which is actually rated higher than the Tesla Y, which is the industry leader. Edmunds at least rates it higher. And it's really kind of a fascinating, the acceleration is exhilarating. Yeah, right. Uh, you you got to give Elon Musk credit for giving it a name, you know, the uh, ludicrous mode that he yeah. puts on the Teslas. <laughs> I mean, you can really fly. Yeah. And there's a lot of technology in these cars. They, they require a lot of chips, which is uh, kind of a problem uh, for the manufacturers because uh, there's a shortage of them. And, uh, you know, it's different. Charging at home is very convenient. You don't have to go to a gas station. And uh, the range is uh, improving, increasing. And then people, they did when they bought the Prius, you know, Toyota sold the most battery electric cars, you know, through hybrids, because hybrids, you know, have a, a battery. Yep, exactly. People would use, they, they, a lot of uh, intelligent people would buy a Prius and they would cal calculate how to maximize the range and, yep, and yep. things like that. So there's a, 
there's an aspect of using technology, how many kilowatts they use and, you know, and so it's, uh, it's kind of neat and it's keeping the car industry fresh, but there are a lot of challenges with regard to uh, EVs and uh, they're not a panacea. They're not, you know, there are a lot of issues coming with them. And uh, we can talk about this later. Uh, you know, the government, it's probably better for the government to invest in research than dictate what products people should buy. Yeah. Well, you, well you're, you're uh, again, you're on the front line. So you're seeing, and to your point, which is a really interesting one that is under underappreciated, which has profound, profound implications for aspirations to ban internal combustion engines, ICE cars, that cars, engineers have managed to make cars incredibly reliable, incredibly long-lived. And when I remember, you know, I'm of a certain age, uh, how often I had to tune up my car. I used to do it myself because I was a mechanic when I was young, how often I have to you know, replace spark plugs, how often, I mean, everything was, you were constantly going to the dealer or doing it yourself for repairs. Now, to your point, cars, people get bored with them before they, they wear out, before they're, before they're inherently unreliable or unsafe. That has obvious implications, right? If you, I mean, my, not to go to, not, not to jump ahead, but maybe, I, you know, given you raised it, but if I were putting out a um, sort of a macro theory in any state or country, where they actually implement a ban on internal combustion engines, this will this will uh, do the obvious. It'll vault the, the value and cost of used vehicles overnight because people will just keep them far longer. It'll increase the used car market, repair market, because electric vehicles aren't ready to replace all vehicles, as, as you well know. But let me, let's come back to what's interesting about it. You know, the, the exhilaration piece, kind of fun, because a lot of people buy vehicles because they like that feeling, right? It's, that's what auto automakers promote. And the sort of, I'll call it, it's probably unfair to use this word, so cult-like features of some cars. All kinds of cars have cult-like features. I mean, where an ecosystem of owners uh, focus on, even obsess on certain aspects of their car, what they really like. You know, the in the case of the Prius, it was obviously the buyers that bought it became preoccupied with driving in a way that could maximize how far their battery would get them and how much fuel miles would be, or this it's, this, it's a nature. When I looked it up and I, uh, and I forgot the exact number, you probably know the number of car companies in the world. If you count boutique car companies, there's a couple hundred, uh, there's only a dozen or so big automakers, but if you, a Ferrari is not a big automaker, but they get on the list in Lamborghini. But if you look at the number of, of uh, models of vehicles available globally to consumers. It's thousands. I mean, this, as you know, people will, will custom cafeteria pick the options they like to have in a vehicle, but just setting that aside, it's a, the fact of so many models tells you a lot about the psychology and the emotion, which goes into it. And the, the risk, the risk of government not recognizing that I think is a political risk, but the one thing you said, which is especially important, both as a political risk and as a practical risk. And political, I mean, this, I don't care what party it is. It's a political risk to, to be heavy-handed in something that people find so valuable that's so democratizing. And one of the things the IEA is specifically talking about, not, it's not just pod driving, you know, co-ownership and shared ownership and all these different aspirational things. They, they do want to, and they're explicit about saying this, they want to not only limit ownership of vehicles. That's in the long range plans, energy plans of 
International Energy Agency and the EU, but they, they also want to reduce, specifically state in their, their plans, that they want to reduce the number of cars per capita, cars per household from today's level in a world where, never mind the United States, in a world where there are, there's only one car per 20 people in, in the world on average. It's, it's inconceivable to me as a practical matter that that's going to happen. I just, it doesn't make sense. Well, you know, they talked about rideshare re- reducing ownership. You just go get a car when you need it. I mean, that sometimes things sound right, but they don't work out. COVID came and people don't want to ride in cars so much. <laughs> what, a, what a shock, huh? Right. Yeah, so kind of, and they said, well, rideshare will reduce pollution because, you know, we won't have as many cars, but they found that people, Ubers and the, and the Lyfts are usually 60% of them. They're not sitting there waiting for a ride. They're driving around. They've actually studied in the city of San Francisco that rideshare has increased traffic congestion yep. and has increased air pollution. Yeah, it was contrary to all the thoughts. What would happen? Yeah. So this actually not been beneficial. Although I find it very convenient to use Uber or Lyft. You know. It's oh, I agree. It's, it's a wonderful than, service, but it has an, it has a real cost because it, it, it's if, not if, good for the environment, and it's yep. obviously economically uh, dubious, uh, questionable because it's <laughs> not making money. Here's one thing about uh, cars. Cars are oftentimes an extension of your personality. You know, my dad used to say, when someone has a dog, they kind of look like the owner. You know, a lot of times, <laughs> times they do. Surprisingly. I well, I don't, I don't want to show you my dog then. It's not going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, nothing against dogs. Uh, I love dogs, but I, I'm not going to show yeah, you my dog now. <laughs> I kids have dogs. I call them my grand dogs. Okay. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and I uh, wish I had more grandchildren. <laughs> but, um, and the thing is about cars, I could take a Honda Accord or Camry, which are very popular cars, stick a battery in it, it won't sell. The car has to have an EV appearance. It has to be different because there's a uh, how I'm looked at is very important. So I'm driving an EV. Uh, you want to be noticed as being driving an EV. And so, you know, you can recognize a Tesla a mile away, a Prius, you can recognize it a mile away. And I think cars have to have a distinct uh, style. Now, uh, ICE cars have different levels of performance based on the horsepower, things like that. Actually, battery electric vehicles have very similar performance. They're all fast. They're all heavy. They all have a smooth ride. So how will you differentiate these cars, I guess, by the body style? You know. Well, the other one that could differentiate, uh, Jeffrey, to, not to interrupt, but to think about this is this is the psychology of it. You know well. You saw the announcement uh, last week between Sony and Honda. So to your point, what Sony figured out correctly is that EV platforms are there's there's no differentiation really. There are some differences uh, in the engineering um, quality of the battery packs, but that's not that's 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 upstream in the battery makers. But they all. So what do, what do you do different? Well, Sony is, is talking about the, partnering with Honda to make the differentiator all about entertainment features of the car. That's what they're focusing on. Yeah, and I don't think they know exactly how that partnership's going to work out, uh, but it's very fascinating. You know, Apple's trying to get much more involved with, uh, with cars and, and, and Dash and how they operate. And, you know, the manufacturers are looking for new profit centers. You know, battery electric technology is very expensive. <laughs> so the, the demand, and you know this better than anyone, the demand for the materials to make these lithium ion batteries, there's just not enough supply. So the price of battery production is, is skyrocketing. You know, one time they said, 
we produce more and more, uh, the prices will come down. And for a while they were per kilowatt, but what I've read it was $106 per kilowatt. So you, if you had, and, and $165 per kilowatt. So it's going the opposite direction. Using, by the way, I know PYD, that's China's big EV maker, and Tesla both announced last month increases in, they, in their prices. And, they, and of course, infamously, Rivian has gotten a lot of trouble because they've had to dramatically increase their forecast price. But have you, and Ford is holding the line, which just means they're losing more money on their new exciting F 150 Lightning. But are you seeing uh, the automakers that, that you work with or know about the, the manufacturers? announce or hint at price increases for the vehicle? Or are they just going to, are they, you think you're just going to absorb these cost increases for now and just. Well, right now production is not uh, real high. Tesla's clearly the leader and uh, I, the other numbers are not that high yet. Although they'll be coming on very strong the next year or two. Volkswagen has uh, expanded their plant in Chattanooga and they'll start full production of the ID4 here and they'll be producing between seven and 10,000 per month. That's right a lot. Now, right now we're probably getting, they were getting maybe 1500 a month into the country from Germany. And at some they point- They talked about any price changes or are they still holding the line, Did, you know? Well, I think right now, uh, one manufacturer who gave us their 10 year plan said, we need to make money on ICE cars to pay for the BEVs. Well, General Motors was public on that. They, they made it clear, I mean, when, when, when uh, their CEO, you know, Mary said uh, that the they're not getting out of the business of producing uh, internal combustion engine trucks, and the profit margins as well are paying for the losses on their EVs. I mean, she was very blunt and direct, which is good for her. Uh, and that, but of course, that math doesn't work if you if you ban internal well, combustion it's, engines. It's not going to work. The prices will continue to go up. You know, I said to someone, oh, as a mass production comes in, uh, the cost will come down. I said, well, maybe in some components like labor, let's say you had a, a gold ring factory and it was the most sophisticated factory <laughs> to make. There were no workers, in fact, all yeah. machines. Yeah. Uh, maybe reduce my labor costs, but the major cost is the price of gold. Yep. And if demand went up for gold, so would the price. Yep. So having this sophisticated, ultra-modern assembly plant it's based upon the price of the commodity, absolutely. You know, cobalt, nickel, and we know the war in Ukraine is having an effect on these on these price uh, costs of these products. You know, well, it is. And so to, to, to expand on your point, you know, I mean, you know this, but the data now I should make it very clear that what the engineers have done is is engineered out through automation and, and learning and knowledge and mass production. Most of the overhead, which is the capital, labor, machines, are making batteries. Battery, battery, batteries going into cars now. Fully seventy to eighty percent of the cost of the batteries entirely the bill of materials: the lithium, manganese, cobalt, steel, nickel, aluminum. So now you're at a point, and I, you know, I've written this way, but the cost of an electric car going forward is is now determined by what the mining industry does, not by what you do as a dealer, not what GM or Volkswagen does. It's what the miners do. And you talk about a, an opaque industry, global industry, that's not only hard to predict, but it's slow moving. And as demand rises, certainly the prices are going to go up. They already are. I mean, aluminum's at 30-year high. Lithium's up uh, 800% in the last three years. But the, the you know, Ukraine war obviously is 
is not the primary cause, but it's a catalyst that's illuminated the problem because you know Russia's the third biggest copper producer in the world. And if you take that much copper at risk, and there's three times more copper on EB, as you know, you, you now begin to change the economics in the wrong direction. But, but we're come back to the money and the behavior part. This is interesting to me because we're a rich country. And when inflation is conquered eventually, which it will be, it's always cyclical, it will get richer again. And in rich countries, people will pay premiums for things they like emotionally, whether it's style, to your point, right, or whatever the feature is. And so I, I have no doubt that there'll be lots of lot more buyers in the future than there are in the present for EVs, but they're going to be, they're going to stay expensive. You know, when I say expensive luxury, it sounds like I'm being an EV critic. I can't see them not becoming, not doing anything, but for a very long time, being in that category of vehicles, which are uh, sold in the, whatever the percentages globally, not, not in, in, in wealthy uh, suburbs, the percentage of cars that are at the high end, we'll call $50,000, 80,000 up is much smaller, obviously, than the Toyota Corolla class, if you call it cars. Yes. Well, Tesla's is, is their products, because of the price point, is considered a luxury brand. So they're the, the best-selling luxury brand in the United States, even though the, the S or uh, the smaller Tesla is not by any size imagination a luxury car, but it's luxury priced. Now, the average electric car now in the United States is $64,000. The average subcompacts twenty four thousand dollars. Yeah, electric cars make up about four point five percent of retail sales in the first quarter of this year, which is the highest it's ever been. But let's let's look at buying electric cars. They're expensive. They're basically affluence, and they have a couple cars and they're stable. In the what's the, what's the ballpark percentage for the luxury market in the United States? So the overall luxury market's fifteen percent, ten percent, probably fifteen percent. Right. Now let's look at let's look at. The people who are buying electric cars, like myself, we have different vehicles in, in our driveway or garage. We have the SUV, so I can carry things. I might have the electric car for around town or appropriate trips. What's interesting, you know, Tesla, there, a lot of their sales are in California, you know, California leads in terms of penetration. It's quite large. But they found that the average Tesla is only driven 6,000 miles a year, yeah, exactly. which is below the twelve to 15,000 mile average because it's just selective and right. it's, question, it's a nice to have as opposed to a daily vehicle for most people that, yes that, yeah. the question is how is this transition to a car that, that's the only car you have and or you have a car and your wife has a car or the type of thing what's going to happen when it gets to the regular people well you look at rivian uh there's an article recently rivian uh they say and it's not a big truck it's not an f-150 or silverado or or Dodge Ram size. It's a smaller. No, it's 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 a bronc. It's the Bronco Wrangler size of vehicle. Yeah, yeah. They said for them to make money, that car need that truck needs to sell for a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, exactly. And that that puts it out of the reach of regular people. The average payment now is six hundred fifty dollars, and that that's going up. But that's not a sixty thousand dollar car. The average car now is like forty two thousand, forty three thousand. Yeah. This, this, but this is the this is the essence of it is that the two parts there's the elitism part which is sort of the psychology political uh, feature of thinking this is a, a solution for every man but I setting that aside it's the practical reality that in in any product any machine any world it's the reality that the cost differential to your point 
and this is what I keep coming back to, is at least two to one, at least, but let's, it's closer to three to one, but let's just, just stick with it. It's a twice as expensive vehicle on average than the vehicles that dominate the world market, including dominate the US market. To pretend it's getting cheaper when it's not happening, the data aren't there, is uh, it, to say it's surreal to keep hearing people talking about how at any minute now they're going to get cheaper. And, and, and as you know, everyone gives the analogy that it's just like no one thought smartphones would get cheap, computers got cheap. So they always throw out this analogy, of course, which is one that I, I spent, I've spent more than a decade taking on is a category error. I mean, a, computers and cars do not scale the same way because one's information and information scaling is not like the scaling of inertia and movement of goods. It doesn't work the same way. Well, the margins, electronics and and technology, the margins are 35% plus. The margins in cars are substantially less. It's probably 5%. (laughs) And so uh, they won't, that's why the technology companies probably will not building cars because there's not enough profit in it. Uh, <laughs> that's, but, that's all you need to know right there is practical matter. And, and uh, the thing is, uh, you know, per, home charging is convenient because, you know, your electricity charge at home is, is fairly low. You know, an example, I live in Northern Virginia and it's around 11 cents a kilowatt hour I pay, but at work it's 21 cents, you know, they, they commercial Pay, they pay more and we probably have spikes in our power demand here at these dealerships. But let's talk about costs. They say, well, you know, it'll cost less to charge my car than gasoline. That's really not true. If you had to rely on public charging, it's 35 to 45 cents a kilowatt hour. Yeah. It's roughly equivalent $4 gas. And then you don't have the convenience factor. I can, I can come home and have a level two charger, which is 240 volt, which is similar. It's a three prong, similar to what most dryers operate on. And it could charge in five, six, seven hours. That's fine overnight. That's great. But if I have to rely on a public charger because I live in an apartment or a condominium or I don't have access to a plug where I park on the street, I'd have to use uh, a, you know, a public char- fast charging facility. It might take me 45 minutes, 15 yep. minutes to charge a car. Let's say you go to, a, a in our area, you have a Sheets or Royal Farms, you know, it's a... Uh, you can get your coffee. There's 10, let's say there's 10 gas pumps and you go to get your gas, you go in to use facility or get coffee. Let's say there are 10 minutes, right? I go in these facilities, usually use a car, almost every gas pump. Yeah. Let's yep. say you go in and you're there 10 minutes, but let's say all those cars become electric cars now and they're all using, uh, they have to use a, a public charging facility. Well, instead of 10 minutes, it's 40 minutes. Yeah, exactly. So I, need, I need 40 chargers now, not 10. But an electric yeah. car is half the range of a gas car. So I need twice as many. Now I need 80. I need 80 charging stations versus 10 gas pumps. And, and those superchargers, if you're, the, if you're the operator owner of that sheets, they cost twice as much to buy and install as a gasoline pump. I've read they could cost a, a 150 kilowatt charger could cost a hundred thousand dollars to put in. Yeah, that's a, that's yeah. Now here's the thing is it's really interesting. I know some dealers in Wisconsin who Porsche and they had to put these real fast chargers in. It drove their electricity prices through the roof in their dealership because if there's an energy spike, your all all your kilowatts are used or charged at that higher rate. Right. They had to like put in natural gas 
uh, generators, solar, and get the <laughs> chargers off the grid so they have their own connection to the grid because it was right. affecting the price of power in the entire building. And I and you see these uh, chart, and I'm not against them. It's got fascinating. I think it's exciting. I th- there's something new to learn in the car business. You know, after you know all these years, and uh, I've read. You know, when I I talked about 10 cents a kilowatt, 11 or 21 cents, there are stations, uh, fast charging stations that have their own meter. It's like a dollar fifty a kilowatt. Exactly. There's actually there's a study that came out recently in Europe because there's a lot more fast chargers there, and it was a uh, I forget which which publication might have been the Guardian, but they they went around and tried to figure out what people are actually paying. In fact, not what the what the you know because of free free charging is not available. People are paying, and that, and to exactly your point, the they found that the average cost per kilowatt hour was in the dollar to two kilo, kilo, dollar to two per kilowatt hour range. So you have to translate that into gasoline equivalent prices, as you know, that gets you in north of ten dollars a gallon that you're paying to refill your vehicle, and you're waiting thirty to forty minutes instead of doing it in four or five minutes. The, the, two, the two things that you're touching on here are to me, the we'll call it the Achilles heel of the aspiration for a magical transformation as opposed to a really, a really exciting new option for a lot of homeowners for a second or third vehicle and for a whole variety of other specialty purposes. The, the, the Achilles heel is not range, which everybody talks about. It's about the refuel time, the charge time for the consumer, because to your point, behaviorally, I mean, people are used to, you know, the F-150, you can fill a big tank up in five minutes and then get on the road. If you try to do that one ton battery in the F-150 Lightning, uh, you're going <laughs> to be, be there, let's just say 40 minutes, you'd be lucky. So the behavioral thing is non-trivial and it's, it's actually a showstopper. But even if you cut that in half, because in the, in the electrical engineering world, Anybody would tell you, look, we'll just go from 150 kilowatt. We'll make it a one megawatt charger because for people who don't understand electricity amongst their audience, uh, you know, power and uh, energy are different. You know, if you think of it as like a, uh, a dam, the, the power is the height of the dam. The energy is the amount of water that flows over the dam. So you could build a higher dam to get more power, more, you know, more impact, but it costs money. And if you go to the one megawatt chargers, now you're now you're into a category of capital costs for the for either the the dealer who operates the chargers or the or the utility that takes you into the stratosphere. And then finally, your point about the peak part where people want to drive because people are peaky, human beings, society's peaky. You stop and charge when you want. It's not just that you're paying peak rates for the energy, which is a very common normal behavior for all products and commodities, but you have what's called, as you know, uh, and a lot of these, a lot of these markets are beginning to figure out that the utilities have something called a demand charge, which has nothing to do with the energy. It has to do with the magnitude of power that you want when you want it or put differently, the extent to which the provider, the utility has to build extra physical infrastructure to accommodate the fact that each car is a bigger electrical load than a house. So it'd be the equivalent if it was a neighborhood and everybody wanted to put fast chargers in uh, a neighborhood that was on a, a local distribution loop that had 30 houses would then have the equivalent of 60 houses. So you have to double the grid, the local grid. Somebody pays for that. So every every consumer pays a demand charge or the government subsidizes, but that 
That's just, it's just money being moved around. This, these are extraordinarily difficult things. They're fascinating in the physics of energy, but they don't change the fact that there's no workaround except extraordinary amounts of money, huge amounts of infrastructure, which, which to, you know, not to, to state, again, this is not a political point. It's not, no one's building that. The, the infrastructure that we're talking about necessary to handle, not the energy, the demand charge is just not being done. Well, what we see too, you're, you're hearing from the media today, threatens a blackout all over the United States. Yeah. And if the weather's bad or a, a plant goes down, the amount of uh, reserve energy between normal demand and availability of energy is narrowing. And what's interesting is that, you know, humans have instinct, right? We just do things. They don't always make sense, but they feel right. And peak power demand in the United States is between, say, 7 and 8 p.m. And right when people have come home, and, and the question is, <laughs> exactly. if you have an electric car and there's the band is very narrow between energy availability and, and uh, power demand at that time. And if everybody has an electric car or a lot of people, and they come home and they all plug in, the grid can't handle it. It'll blow the grid. It'll blow the transformer on your street because it can't, yeah, it it can't, will. can't handle the power. Now, I've read Utchify uh, America is uh, a multi-billion dollar uh, entity that Volkswagen as part of their diesel gate settlement uh, did set up power stations, Utchify America, and anyone can use it. But you buy certain cars like the ID4 or INOC5, you get two or three years of free power through the network. And I've read that, and typically there's 150 kilowatt or 350 kilowatt chargers. How long it takes to charge your car? A lot depends how much power is on the street. Correct. Sometimes 150 is faster than 350. And I think it's just about power availability. And these things have gigantic transformers. I mean, I, I like walking around them because you have a few minutes there to get charged up. And like, you're like, this is really an expensive <laughs> facility. Well, it, well it, the, um, the part that, that you're, pointing to it by seeing it firsthand and most people haven't seen it experienced it and, and again it's just a disconnected disconnected information domain from the fact that these cars are exciting to drive well built interesting useful doesn't change the fact that what most people don't appreciate is what you're describing is the difference in energy density in effect between gasoline as a means of storing energy and electricity in, in batteries i mean the the physics difference, as I keep reminding uh, the EV enthusiasts, you, start, you have to start out with the basic stuff. Lithiated chemicals store energy, as does petroleum uh, products. There's 5,000% more energy stored in a pound of gasoline than in a pound of lithiated chemicals. 5,000%. It's a big difference. And when you begin to think in those terms and ask, well, how much how much more stuff do I need to store the same total quantity of energy? That's why you end up with these Whatever the putative cost, let's say $10,000 cost to manufacture a battery that can hold as much energy as, uh, you know, 15 gallons of gasoline. This is a, a very difficult physics problem. The electrical engineering isn't, isn't amenable to magical, magical innovation. We know how to build big transformers and big chargers. It's well-established engineering. It's been around for a century. And there is, this is the irony. There's no innovation there to speak of, of any significance because the, the physics is so well-established. So the innovation is, is coming around, oh, well, innovation. 
forcing, and again, IEA has been writing this and saying explicitly, so give them credit for that, forcing or encouraging, quote, behavioral changes. So to your point, people come home, if they want to plug the car in when they get out of the car, because it's just, you, that way you don't forget, right? So you plug it in and you think it's going to be charged. Now, the, the, the grid doesn't want you to do that, because if everybody in the neighborhood did that, to your point, the, the, either the transformers blow up or what the utility will do, and, 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 and this is the plans, is not let your charger work. It will have a uh, smart device on it that simply you plugged it in. You think you're charging, but you're not, because the grid's going to tell you when you're allowed to charge. I don't think that's going to be uh, an acceptable behavioral change uh, for, for drivers. Hey, you know, the thing is, uh, now you can program your car. You can program your charger depending on what you have a juice box, which I bought it, check the rating. And you can, I have an app. I can, I can control when my car is charged. So they, and I was one of the first 10,000 signed up for uh, Virginia Powers or Dominion Energy's uh, peak, peak power plan. And I don't think it's really saved me money because it charges you less, more for electricity during peak demand and less off peak. But I charge between say midnight and five, yeah. and which is mostly nuclear energy in Virginia at yeah. that time. So that's kind of nice that though. When you, that's when you'd want to charge, but that's not like I'm going to charge one because I might have to go someplace. Right. If my if my battery's low, I might uh, you know I might my some might fall down the stairs, go whatever. I'm gonna I want my car to be charged, so I'm gonna start charging when I come home. Of course. And that's gonna be a problem now in England. When you buy, I've read when you buy a charger now, it will not let you charge between certain times. Right. Those that's my point. times. Yeah. And that and they want you. What I've read in England is to have a separate hookup for your car. Yeah. Well, they want to be able, I think, extract power from your battery to be part of that sur the surplus grid power. I don't want someone taking power out of my battery. Well, you know? imagine, imagine if, if it's your only vehicle and you have, you, you have, you forgot to buy milk or formula for your, your child and you, your car is fully discharged and not allowed to charge, or it's being used to support the grid because it's cloudy uh, in, in, a, in a local solar grid. I mean, these are, but these are uh, these kinds of behavioral changes being forced on people I mean, again, it set aside the politics in the real world. It's not just that, you know, as a, as a dealer, what, how people operate and behave or, and as a driver yourself, but you also, you, you know, we also have to recognize these are, these are extraordinarily intrusive behavioral changes being foisted on a product where you started in our conversation, pointing out the same instincts as I do. That's incredibly democratizing product. And the reason it's democratizing is because of the freedom it gives people to make spontaneous decisions based on what they want to do for entertainment or what they need to do for emergencies or for their families or what, an errand. You, take, you begin to take all that away or erode it in order to meet these, well, I'll call it the physics of the realities of, of, of uh, fueling a battery-powered vehicle. And if they, if they want to use batteries uh, and, and, and extract electricity from your battery would sit in your garage plugged in every time you cycle in and out of a battery it has less capacity you know <laughs> that's right and, yeah. and it would eventually would degrade my battery because these things you do lose mileage i yep. don't think it's a serious problem right now as long as you do now rapid chargers you're not supposed to charge more than 80 percent you know and at the id4 they recommend eight percent unless you go on a trip you go 100 but go right away 
So I pretty much a happy meme. I do 90% at home, but if I'm going on a trip someplace, I'll charge to hundred percent, but rapid charger is only 80. Now I've read four 350 kilowatt chargers use the same power as one third of the empire state building or 230 homes. Yeah. That tells you how much power it takes to charge these batteries. Now you talked about energy density. We we've heard of the, the, the Tesla, uh, power wall or whatever, it's their battery, right? I think it costs six to $8,000, but it only holds like $2 worth electricity. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So uh, the infrastructure, the cost, now President Biden, uh, as part of the Build Back Better or the infrastructure bill, has pledged to build 500,000 rapid charges around the United States, uh, and it's 7.5 billion. If you do the math, it's $15,000 per charger, where these charges are uh, probably $100,000, yep. including the grid. So he's not, it's, it's not going to work. He wants to have every 50 miles, a fast charger on a highway. Well, there may not be power at that, at that location. Oh, there, there, either, there either won't be power or what they'll, what governments unfortunately do is they implement mandates. So they, they shift the cost to the electric rate payers to add billions of dollars worth of infrastructure to support the, the, uh, these things. I'm going to come back to, uh, so the, the yin and yang, the good and bad, the things that we're talking about sounds like, and, and when I say this to people, they think I'm negative on EVs. And I, like you, like a lot, about, a lot of things about electric vehicles. What I'm negative on is, I guess I call it negative on naivete about real costs, who can buy them, where they'll be used, and the real cost being transferred to people who can't afford it because the people who can afford an EV and afford to charge them on fast chargers. Well, let's call it the 20% of the population, whatever the number is. It's certainly a, a minor share, but the costs are being borne by the 80%. And that's, this is, this is a, yeah, profoundly unfair. I mean, you know, University of California at Berkeley did a study on this issue of both EVs and home solar of who's, who's buying them and who's paying for them. They reached the obvious conclusion that wealthy people are buying them and getting the subsidies and the subsidies are paid for by the average taxpayer who is not buying the EV or the home solar charger. So it's, it's a, a profoundly unfair way to uh, implement a, a sort of a vision. And it, but we're, it's worse than that is, is, as you know, it's a vision, the complete replacement, it's not achievable. We aren't physically mining enough quantities to build these. I'm, I, you know, I've made this prediction. I'll say it again with you. Cause you, you, you can't say this because you're on the receiving end of, of the nature of, we'll call it the politics of this. There, there's a hard stop, you know, the, the bridge is out kind of thing. Since the world is not mining enough copper, aluminum, never mind the exotic stuff like, you know, cobalt, we're not mining enough of the basic metals to produce this many electric vehicles. We're just, the world is not doing it, not planning to do it. So it's very near future and the data show this, and by very near, I mean, next year or two, as all the scaling goes up, we're gonna find that they can't be built. And the, not just the prices will go up, that they won't be delivering. You know, talk about microchip shortages, there's gonna be copper won't be go going into, into vehicles and that will inflate home prices because of copper that goes there. This is, this is gonna have uh, unfortunate outcomes and not, not change anything because you know, cars are, are important. But uh, as I've done arithmetically, I'm sure you've seen the same things. Even if, even if we go from today's 15 million EVs in the world, all pure battery electric vehicles to 300 million, that reduces world oil demand by less than 10%. It just doesn't change the equation of oil consumption. 
uh, for an awful lot of expense and an awful lot of heartache. Well, here's the problem is that electric cars are going to invariably go up in, in price substantially. And I'll, I'll talk about some of the reasons why that is. And that will be an affordability issue, particularly with higher interest rates. And that people won't, if they don't, if they can't afford what's offered, they'll have to stay in their old car, which pollutes more, consumes more energy, and is less safe. And it's also bad for the economy. You know, if you want to reduce pollution uh, or CO2, you want to get the old cars off the road and get them into newer, more efficient vehicles. Now, all dealers in the United States are all in on EVs. If a customer wants to buy red wagons, I'm going to have my lot full of red wagons. I think there's tremendous appetite for electric cars. Sure. I just think there won't be enough of them uh, to fill the demand. Here's what's going to happen in the next couple of years. And no one really knows this is going to happen. There's a real train wreck coming. Now, uh, President Biden, uh, they have said his administration set very, very uh, draconian, uh, very difficult to meet fuel economy standards, and I'll explain what they are. NHTSA is the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. They're empowered by Congress to set fuel economy standards. They're supposed to set them based upon available technology and affordability. Right. But what they want to do between now and 2026, they want to see a 40% improvement in fuel mileage. The best the industry has ever been able to do is 3%. Yeah. In some years, we're to be a 10 to 11% improvement. And that can only be done by an acceleration of producing uh, more electric cars. Now, they set the 40% is based upon your wheelbase. They don't want, building a lot of small cars will not have a positive, small cars have to go 40%, big trucks have to go up 40%. It's, it's, you can't just get 40%. What do you have to do? Uh, nine speed transmissions, you know, all kinds of exotic technology. You're right. There's, there's no engineered way to do that. And if there's, yeah. And, and yet, so they also, we push more electric cars will help balance now electric cars and MPGE. So maybe the ID four is rated 110 MPG miles per gallon equivalent. So that goes in versus a 30 mile average to two. Then EPA, separate from NHTSA, has set a grams per CO2 mile uh, uh, emission level. They went between now and, and 2026, the average car to emit 133 grams of CO2 uh, per mile. No gas car emits at that low level. The lowest is the Prius Eco at 159. The Honda Accord's 250. So how do you get to 133? It's almost impossible. Ice cars can't do it. So they have to produce electric cars to go into, into the mix. The SUV, they want it about 185 grams per mile. Well, the Silverado and F-150 popular trucks get between 450 and 550. You can't take a 550 Honda Pilot and get to 185 average. You have to build a lot of electric cars. And then California has a, an emission waiver again. They have an overlay. And... Uh, one one thing that manufacturers pursuing to meet CO2 emission requirements in, in Europe is our pl- plug-in hybrids. Yeah. And I asked the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, which is the uh, lobbyist group for the auto manufacturers, is is having more plug-in hybrids uh, a, a solution for meeting these standards? So, well, California doesn't like plug-in hybrids; they'd be severely limited. Like what? And uh, they like full electric. So what's going to happen? 
uh, we're going to, a lot of manufacturers will not have enough electric cars to meet the numbers. So there'll be extreme shortage of, of gasoline powered cars. They, all these manufacturers are going to be, have an incredible appetite for all the minerals to make batteries. Yep, exactly. It is, and it's going to explode the price of those. So uh, what we're going to find is shortages of cars. Uh, the manufacturers will be selling fewer cars, but they'll have to make more money in each car they sell. So the price of cars is going to skyrocket. Right. And because, because of the demand for minerals, the price of electric car will skyrocket. And so a lot of consumers will be priced out of the market Right. They will have to keep their old car, fix their old car. Yep. It doesn't help anybody. No, exactly. And, and this is a disaster. And, it's, and, it's, and the die is cast. It can't be changed because they have to give the manufacturers 18 months for a new program. So let's say a new president comes in 24 and doesn't like any of this. It might take them two years to change the regulation. Then they have to give 18 months notice to the manufacturers. This is 2028. This, the die is cast on this. It will happen. And it's not, it's going to be ugly. And uh, it's unfortunate because the pe- persons hurt the most are people who can't afford uh, electric cars, however, however desirable they are. And they're very desirable. I, I, I drive it every day. I'm a car dealer. I drive my own personal electric car. I like it. It's kind of neat. And I, I like every aspect of it. But it's unfortunate the average person who is, you know, makes up the majority of people are going to be priced out of the market. And that's very damaging. And this is a, this is a very serious issue, because it's it's echoed by the way into the oil and gas markets. It's the same issue. Things take time when regulations are put in place. They take time to unwind. If you decide later you don't like them, so there's a certain inertia, if you like to use a physics term, in all these big these big systems. But just as with the oil industry, that the inertial effects of policy decisions made in the last decade have led directly to the high cost of gasoline and oil. They're not. The, the invasion of Ukraine, it was a catalyst that moved it up more, but it was already past $100 a barrel before the invasion. So we, we, were, we were seeing the effects and they were cat- catalyzed by that. But what happens in that environment is, of course, and we are seeing it, is the oil companies and gasoline, gasoline distributors who are not oil companies, as you know, 80% of all gasoline stations are not operated by the major oil companies. They're owned by small businesses. Uh, they are blamed for the high prices. They are, and are, they go beyond that. They want to take your profits away if they think you have profits and, and implement windfall profits tax acts. The point of that obviously is you, your business is going to face the same thing given the reality of where things go. If prices start escalating, which they will, if you have a shortage of internal combustion engine cars, EVs get more expensive, prices go up because you can't operate the business without the prices going, everything you'll be blamed. The dealers will be, I mean, I just, I mean, you can't say a lot about this probably, but I'm, I'll just make the prediction. Just as the oil companies and gasoline station owners are blamed for high gasoline prices, as prices escalate on vehicles because of these policies, the car dealers will be um, right in the um, epicenter of being blamed for this as not just the car makers. And they certainly aren't going to blame themselves, the policymakers, regulators. I, I would say the only thing I would, slightly disagree with you on is I think you it is possible I don't believe it'll happen it is possible to unwind it faster than it was and it's gonna it's gonna get unwound because it's the old adage that what can't happen won't happen I mean markets are not going to tolerate a shortage of vehicles getting more expensive for a long time they will be very unhappy with it 
So there'll be some reaction to politically and we'll fix it. It, it may take years. No, I, I think uh, uh, someone said the only way it could happen if they beg for change. Now, Car- California has set all kinds of levels. See, when they California is, is when they set unobtainable levels, they just change the level once they see they can't meet it. But the manufacturer has spent billions of dollars trying to get there. I know. That's a waste of capital yeah. to do that. Now, the uh, 14 state uh, red state AGs are challenging California emission waiver. And, and it's a very weak case. They have this emission waiver. You know, California had, had unique. Uh, unique uh, air quality issues, but CO2 is a global thing. And one state should not dictate policy for the other 49 states, which is what they're doing right now. So California, it would help help meet these levels if California was not, you know, was put back and you can control your your own state, but stay out of controlling uh, Maryland or New York state that have signed on to California emissions. And I think plug-in hybrids, is uh, certainly a solution because they are attributed to very low level of CO2 uh, emission. But this is a train wreck. It's going to hurt the regular person. It's going to hurt the economy. And and I don't, I, generally, I, I find this administration doesn't back down. They double down. And, and uh, you know, this is a transition to something new. It's just a transition. Inflation is a transition. Well, transition to what? I mean, we're all getting hurt by this. And well, it's a transition to higher, higher, higher costs for things that people care about and lower availability. The thought process is if the price of gasoline goes up, the price of cars, people will look for alternatives. They'll take mass transit. Yeah. Well, people are scared yeah. of mass transit right now. They're, uh, I mean, the, the, the Washington D.C. metro subways doesn't have any near close to percentage of the right. Well, also, as a practical matter, the mass transit uh, option is not an option for more than 80% of people. And I would say it's, that's an understatement that need to what they use what, for what they use their cars for. It's just simply not an option. And you can't build enough mass transit to, to serve the ex-urban markets and even most suburban markets. You can't build enough buses. It's a, I, the, the, but here's the, the here's the, the I guess the, to, to bring it back to both uh, a plus and minus, right? I'm, I'm, I like you think it's great that consumers are going to have an option, but an EVs being one of the options. And there's a lot of innovation coming yet in that market, as well as the internal combustion engine market, if it were allowed to happen. But I, I'm pessimistic with only a little few green shoots, let's just say that the, as the pain becomes obvious and it's all, it's becoming obvious now through the leading, the leading edge indicator for for most people is simply the cost of gasoline and realizing sticker shock when it comes to the replacing their Toyota Corolla at 20,000 or whatever that for a $50,000, or even if you could got a discount and used $40,000 EV, this is, this is beginning to ripple through the system. Political reactions can cause policy changes. And uh, I, I guess I, let me, given the, the, the inertial thing, that you described was the regulatory environment puts into place rules that automakers have to accommodate and they begin to accommodate. And that has a long tail to it. But if we were optimistic, let's just try to be optimistic. (laughs) And we had the political willpower that Congress changed the law to simply decided that consumer costs and consumer convenience matters. We well, I guess let me ask if you agree or disagree. Then, rather than years of pain, 
we might be able to get out of it in a, in a year or two. Well, the, the thing is, Congress didn't set these rules. The regulatory state did. Well, Congress has to pass laws that doesn't. Well, that's my point. No, no, no. This is not true. The there was a lawsuit called Massachusetts versus the EPA, right? And in which they uh, the the Supreme Court empowered the EPA, which uh, whose job is to control pollution, that CO two is a pollutant. So right. they're they're doing right. they think they're doing right. their rule to control right. CO two pollution. I I have you know we don't want to get in, into that completely, but it's hard for me to think that CO2 is essential for life to exist is also pollutant. It's kind of one of those quandaries. But <laughs> That's a, their, I their, job, their job is to, uh, is to basically control CO2 pollution. That's what they're doing. They're doing their mandate. Unless someone takes away, it's called the endangerment finding. Unless someone I, reduces yes. the endangerment right. finding, yes. the regulatory state's not going to give this up. Well, no, I, I agree. I guess that my, that's my point, Jeremy. The, the, the thing that Congress can do uh, and, and what what the the courts have ruled is because of the, the because of we'll call it as you well know not to get in the weeds the Chevron deference the deference towards the regulators as experts and the uh, the classification of CO two as a pollutant gives the uh, regulatory entities this power but it's power that was given to them not by the constitution per se, it was given to them by the nature of the laws that were put in place years ago. And of course the laws are being quote, upheld to your point. So the, the boldness that will be required, and I don't know that, that this is gonna happen in the near future, the boldness that's required is, is a fundamental restructuring. Remember, remember the, here's the thing is, the manufacturers have to spend billion dollars to adjust. They're going to convert plants to battery plants. They can't yep. convert them back to ice plants. No, they can't. It, it, it's it, see manufacturing uh, a battery electric vehicle, and, and it's a different line. It's a different process. Yep. Now, right now, you could build some manufacturers uh, are, are very sophisticated. They could build like six different types of ice cars in the same line. You can't do that battery electric. That the whole process is different. The battery is in the Floor plan, floor plan of the car. It's uh, it's a whole different process. So you can't shift back and forth. And the manufacturers don't have unlimited money. They have to use their own money to do this transition. Exactly. And, and then it's the law. If they change the regulations, they must give the manufacturers 18 months to adjust to it. So say they find the train wrecks happening 26, it's 28 before anything can happen. Yeah, that's and true. they have to adjust their production. This thing is going to happen. And I suspect this, the, the regulatory state won't won't give this up because this is part of the transition into something new. And they, you know, the government wants that. Well, actually, California wants by 2035 there be no more ice car sales and all be battery electric vehicles. What's going to happen in the next year or two uh, before these things kick in is they're planning the changes between 2026 and 2030. They'll be even more onerous. So. There's other things coming down. This is not the end. This is the beginning of this transition to an electrified economy. The problem is, I, I don't. I it's it's going to be a real problem. And by the time they realize yeah. it, it's, it's done. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's done. But the I'll go back to what the, it, it it won't actually be a transition to an electrified transportation system. It'll be a transition to a high cost, uh, limited options for consumer personal transportation system, because we'll come back to the reality that you well know, and that it's slowly being begun to be recognized, is that 
not only will we not produce the quantity of materials and minerals needed to produce the number of EVs that necessary for the quote transition, but you know China, right, we we've become we've become more aware of supply chain. So China enjoys a market dominance in the key materials, refined materials for the EV supply chain. That's double the market dominance of OPEC and oil. So the the choice by China to deliberately expand its capacities in these areas is not unsubtle. It has huge import implications, geopolitical implications. I would say if we're looking at Ukraine as a trigger for high costs, for high cost of oil and high cost for some other commodities like wheat and palladium, it's also a, a supply chain trigger, which is causing some in Congress now to take a look at the consequences. One of them that's becoming obvious is this is a shift to uh, import dependencies again for everything that has to do with the supply chain of the so-called transition. I, I'm not so sure, uh, I, 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 I'm, I know you're right that the uh, ability to fix it is inherent in the, both not just the law, but as a practical matter, manufacturers can't switch back and forth between these platforms. So it's, it's gonna take time. It's gonna have high consequence. Maybe that's the highest consequence thing that's going to happen is in the so-called attempt for a transition is 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 going to center around cars and what happens to the automotive market because it's so darn important to American economy and America's well-being. Well, we see what shortages uh, just the chips and other uh, products. I mean, you mentioned palladium. You know, the war in Ukraine. Uh, there's you know we know there's been a shortage of chips that has to do with uh, demand exceeding supply. Automobile manufacturers. I think they use about 15% of the chips, but they use neon. I've read they use neon gas to make chips and 70% of the neon, world's neon gas came from Ukraine. Right, that's right. And we're not getting that. And palladium is used in cattle converters. 40% of the right. world's palladium comes from Russia. Right. So this is causing, in fact, uh, the, the sales rate last month, the United States and new cars was at recessionary levels, not because there's lack of demand, there's lack of supply. Exactly. It's about four or five million car. Uh, yeah, it's, we're, we're tracking it based on May sales. We're, that's like a five million yearly shortage of cars based from demand to supply. And the, uh, these are only being exacerbated by uh, other world events and also this transition to an electrified economy, which uh, it's, it's, it's going to be a real challenge, I think. And the problem is they, I, I, I'm trying to find out who do you warn about this? Now, the manufacturers brought this upon themselves. Half the manufacturers, they really wanted to get about $15,000 in subsidies from the federal government for, to help people uh, buy EVs. They would said that these high level of emission uh, requirements are okay, but we have massive subsidies to help with the transition. Well, they got all the regulations and no subsidies. And a, and a Republican Congress is not sympathetic to them. Now, I understand some of the car manufacturers are crying the blues. Well, they brought it upon themselves. You know, you make your bed, you have to sleep in it. And it's it's a shame that they wouldn't stick up. It's the trains left the station. They could they, they could have said, this is not practical. This is not achievable. But they're all jockeying for position. They're all, you know. It, well, I could I could I could be a cynic and say they all wanted to get the Tesla glow in terms of the yes. equity valuations. And if you yes. were and I'll and I'll I'll give you my cynical scenario. You're sitting in a board meeting without anybody recording, just a 
there's just the senior executives and they look at their stock valuations compared to Tesla and ask this question. If we alloc- if we announce we're going to go all EV, announce a, well, I'll pick a number, $10 billion program and commit a billion dollars because we don't have to spend it all right away, uh, what will that do to our our stock price? And the answer that the CFO would give, well, it'd probably add $50 billion to the valuation of our company or some bi- a big number. It's a no-brainer as a fiduciary. You'd say, "Well, we we got to announce this." And uh, I, I I agree with that. I think they're seduced by the Tesla effect. Exactly. Uh, now, Charles Lindbergh was the first to fly solo across Atlantic. Who was second? Well, <laughs> no one knows. Elon Musk is PT Barnum. You know, you, you could give you got to give uh, Elon Musk credit in this sense, uh, but for him, I really think that he was the first. To your point on Lindbergh, that got uh, to recognize the confluence of lower cost uh, lithium battery technology and the opportunity to make a vehicle at the high end that people would want. And it's had quite an impact, but let's, let's uh, this has been a very helpful uh, conversation in the sense of both, I'll call it the, the, the dualism that people don't seem to want to accept politically or emotionally in, in energy and consumer product domains, which is there are some very exciting things going on and there are some things that can't happen and some things we try to force that will have very negative consequences. I'm, I'm going to be cautiously optimistic that not that we're not going to uh, suffer more pain of inflation of all kinds, including car prices, and gasoline prices, but that we're going to reset to a kind of energy rail politique and do course on what's possible because it's not possible to do things people are imagining. However, it is, it is very worrisome. And if you're in the ecosystem that, that you're in, well, you know, the world I work in has two sides, the energy producers and the energy technologies that use energy, whether it's computing or cars and whether it's oil or solar. And selling a story that's not true is destructive to the economies. It's destructive to, to average everyday people. And this is, there, there are very few defenders of what I'll call reality. And I keep talking about preaching the gospel of reality. You're one of the handful trying, and I know you get attacked for it occasionally. Uh, it just has nothing to do with one's opinions or uh, issues about climate change. It has to do with what one can do and who pays for it. And this is, this is consequential stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're out talking about it. And I, I hope what can happen in your role is that we can get more of an engagement between I am I'm, I'm really pleased that you're on the front lines talking about these things. It's important that that policymakers and people who vote for politicians understand what's possible, not what's aspirational, what's possible in timeframes that have meaning. Otherwise, you know, the, the train wreck becomes a really serious train wreck as opposed to just painful. So I uh, congratulations for doing it. But boy, I, 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 I don't, I'm not naive that it won't, it will be an easy task to keep preaching the gospel reality. The real problem is the auto manufacturers have not taken a lead in this. Now, um, with the auto dealers uh, association is going to follow the lead of the car manufacturers. If they won't stick up for themselves, we can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. I can talk to politicians and warn them this is coming or talk to dealers, prepare for this, you know, and, uh, but the auto dealers need to take, I mean, the auto manufacturers need to take the lead. They, they dropped the ball. Some were concerned, some weren't. The, uh, obviously, they misplayed their hand. They're the ones who need to say something, but they're, they're not willing to. They can't. And 
we need articles in the Wall Street Journal to warn people this thing's coming. And I don't see it being unraveled. I think it's going to happen. And we'll have to live with the consequences and adjust from there. But it, it could be very ugly. I think uh, we need, we need articles in the I, New York Times and the other and Washington Post to talk about the human consequences to people that that are it, to your point about the, the the typical car buyer and how they can live their lives and what things will cost them. Because that's, you know, the Wall Street Journal is a great audience. I write there, as you know, and it's a you reach a lot of people. The problem is this this issue has become politicized as opposed to, uh, you know, treated as a important economic feature. The problem is it's the emotional aspect. We all should care about the planet. We all should care about doing the right things. Now, my sister-in-law is a great person. She has solar panels in her backyard. I sold her an electric car, a Bolt. She loves it. And they like going on ship cruises. And she just went to Alaska and says, you should get there for the glaciers melt. I said, well, you know, I think they'll be around for a while. And I saw an article and it said, these cruise ships burn 150 tons of oil every day, whether in port or at sea. And it's the worst kind of oil that one cruise ship creates as much CO2 as a million cars. Okay. So I sent that article to her. She goes, I don't think I can go on a cruise again. I said, no, you enjoy it. It's <laughs> not going to make a difference. I love cruise. I love cruises too, but you know, the same is true and, of but, flying. Don't tell her the airplane's flying on, on uh, <laughs> distillate fuel. So, and here's, I read California. There's lots of oil on the ground of California. A lots of oil. They import 56% right. of their oil. And, they won't extract it from their own shores. And the and biggest importer from Saudi Arabia, by the way, which is not, not irrelevant. And I read the CO2 generated by the ships is twice the CO2 generated by all the cars in the state. Yeah. Well, if you're really about reducing CO2, how does that make sense? But it feels right. You know, we shouldn't drill here. We'll, we'll get it somewhere else. If I can't see it, it's like it's not happening. So to say that these things make sense and people will see the light, I don't think they will because they're, they're driven by these, the same reason, you know, people have electric car or solar panels. They go on cruises. Well, you know, your point is exactly right in this sense that people aren't going to change your opinion if it feels right. But it feels right because of things they believe that they've read and been told. And as people begin to learn things like it's been in the news, including the Washington Post, give them credit for this, that the cobalt in the batteries, half of the world's cobalt in the batteries is mined in Congo and the Congolese, unfortunately, are notorious for employing child labor. So as people begin to learn those things, the things that are invisible, it's possible they'll change their mind in due course. But I'm like you, uh, even though I'm an optimist that that information can work. I'm not an optimist that that information is easy to push out in this current climate. So, I, well, I, I will do my best, you know, with my political contacts, at least give people some context. I, I'm one of the few who's been peeling back the onion on this. And I've been talking to some of the car manufacturers to try to confirm my suspicions. And it seems like I'm right, but a lot of people just don't know this. And, and I, I don't know what can be done about it personally, although I, I would like people to be prepared for it. Uh, brace yourself, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's like, I know as a, on that, on that happy, on that happy note, Jeffrey, thank you for, for uh, the candor and the uh, el el elucid uh, exploration of an incredibly important issue. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's not, it's just not just about being a dealer selling cars. You, you, you're in the business of providing one of the most important products to consumers 
that they can get other than the things that are for mere survival, food and fuel. Let's, let's put things in context. Our air quality is continuing to improve. We, the six primary air pollutants, that's not including CO2, are down about 70%, exactly. even though population's grown. The air is cleaner and cleaner. Yep. It happens gradually. And even CO2, we've re, we're the only industrial country that's reduced our CO2 emissions. Yep. Something like 17%. Yep. We're using as much CO2 per person as like the 1950s. And yet we seem to be the ogre bogeyman of the world. So the good news is we have been reducing as we transition to natural gas from, from, from coal and we need more nuclear energy. For some reason, we will hate nuclear energy. Wouldn't it be great just to have nuclear energy? Well, safe you know, energy? here's, here's the thing is you, I, I'm a very much a pro nuke as you probably know, I campaigned for and defended the virtues of nuclear energy for a long time. I was at the accident at three mile Island uh, for the week of the accident and then spent the next six years of my life arguing and defending the virtues of nuclear energy. But here is the good news. You as an electric battery, electric vehicle driver, were driving a nuclear powered car to your point where we started when you charge, set to charge at night in Virginia, baseload yes. power in Virginia is dominant by nuclear energy. So you have the dream from the 1950s when Ford imagined the fusion car that they uh, penciled on a drawing board that be nuclear powered. Here we are with nuclear powered cars. That, that would be transformational in terms of, uh, of, the, of the technologies of primary energy supply. But you're right. People uh, are, the, the environmental organizations uh, still tend to be overwhelmingly anti-nuclear, which is profoundly unfortunate and, and profoundly uh, schizophrenic and naive. It's the safest form of energy per unit of power. Absolutely. More people fall off wind turbines than, uh, and, and it's even solar, safer than solar per unit of energy produced. But that's for another, another day. But look, it's not all bad news. A lot of good news. You know, my, my parents, well, my dad would say, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> that's right. And, that. you know, we're trying to do the right thing. Uh, but sometimes you get the wrong result. The key is to adjust and try to figure out what works best. So we can, you know, re, re, you know, we, you know, do the right things for the environment and for economy and for quality of life. And as you, I'm worried about the average person. Uh, they're not going to be able to afford these cars and there'll be a shortage and, and that doesn't help the environment. So hopefully we can adjust and, and find the right direction. And uh, eventually we will. And we're, it's countries made up of optimists. Yep. You know, the Russians are fatalists. You know, if it's going good, it will end. And it, the history just <laughs> Gives you a good reason why that is. That's a our optimists. You knock me down, I'm gonna pick myself up. So our optimism will carry us forward, and uh, and we'll get through it. It's just the idea is is to reduce the pain and the negative consequences as much as possible. <laughs> that's, that's a that's a perfect note for us to wrap on uh, up on, right. especially given given the the title for my podcast. And I share I share exactly those sentiments, and I applaud you again for participating in the public education and the preaching of the gospel reality, because that's what will get us back on track. So thank you. Thank you again, Jeffrey. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So if you enjoy uh, this podcast or any of my podcasts, uh, again, I'll say what everybody does in the podcast world, it would be helpful uh, for you to uh, rank, rate in the usual places. Obviously, it's helpful if you like it to, to rate it. Those things matter. And as I always say, if you have ideas, complaints, questions, I will do future episodes as I ha have had in the past, answering questions that are uh, that come into me, uh, both from my podcast and from my 
writing and speeches to that in the future. In the meantime, uh, I resolutely continue to try and struggle to be an optimist. So for the last optimist for this episode, Mark Mills signing off. <laughs>